Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Well, the Virgin Mary, she, um, she really made up for lost time uh, because she ended up having uh, at least uh, four other sons and uh, two other daughters, at least, after she gave birth to Jesus. Now, I hate to drop a bombshell on you guys like this because I know if you grew up Catholic like me, uh, or maybe Greek Orthodox, this is actually scandalous and to be talking in these sorts of way, this sorts of way about the, the Virgin Mary, um, who was you know, supposedly supposed to stay a virgin forever, but didn't. And so I used to have lunch with, uh, on a pr- fairly regular basis with the Monsignor over at St. Aidan's, and we had a great time. He was, he was an amazing guy. You know, he's, he passed away a little while back, but uh, really loved our, our lunches, and every so often we would get to talk theology, well, actually all the time, but sometimes about Mary, and I would always like it because we would get to talking about Mary, and he would blush. Like, the idea of when I would talk to him about, like, Mary and Joseph, like, doing some aggressive cuddling, he would, like, he just couldn't even handle it. He would, like, shake his head, and he'd put his hands up, and he's like, don't even, no, no, no. And I'm like, this is scandalous stuff, I, I know. But you can't imagine now. So think of Jesus, not like as we kind of think of him as like a savior and, and hero, like a miracle worker and, you know, the, the champion of the people, all this kind of stuff. Forget that for a minute and just think of him as like, like a part of a family, right? Because he, he grew up with like a mom and a dad and siblings. You, can you imagine what it must have been like to grow up with Jesus as your older brother? Right? I mean, this is, must have been like absolutely incredible experience in all of the most frustrating ways. Like he had like a family and there were like others running around and stuff like that. And I love the artists because they like put halos around his head. Like, it, was it like that? Did he glow when he walked into the room? Ah, like an angel choir every time he... No, but you know, he had a family and the family had some serious issues with him. They had some serious doubts about him. In fact, at one point they thought he kind of lost, you know, his marbles. And then something changed, and at at least some of his siblings decided that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And you you may have heard us say this uh, in the past, but you know, it bears repeating. How you guys, a lot of you have siblings, right? I know most of you probably, everyone, most, a lot of you have siblings. How many? Let me see hands. Five, ten. All right, no, you got all right. We got a lot of siblings. Excellent. See? A lot of what would it take for your brother to convince you that he was God? <laughs> right? You gotta think about that. Like, what would it take? Because it's a high bar. Like, I actually grew up with them. I actually know. But this happened. We have two letters of the New Testament 
written by physical brothers of Jesus. But they weren't always that way. They actually started out as skeptics, but were won over. And so we're doing this series, uh, and we're actually uh, been doing it here for quite a few weeks, where we're exploring what it, what it means to live a sold-out life for Christ by examining the lives of the authors of the New Testament kind of seeing who they were and the kind of lives they lived and how they grew up and all that kind of stuff, and then trying to figure out how those lessons can apply to us. And I've really enjoyed uh, this series and kind of learning about some of these uh, authors a little bit more deeply. We've been enjoying it, but we're actually coming to the end of that series now, and I think it's fitting that we end the series with the actual brother of Jesus, who is James. That's his name. So, James, of all the authors that we've looked at, is actually the hardest hitting. He, is a, he, is, he doesn't pull a punch for anything. And he gets right into the nitty gritty. He calls for the highest levels of commitment. And you got to ask, how is it that this guy even got to that place? Because if you're like most followers of Christ, if you're like most people who would even call themselves a Christian, then you struggle with seasons of life that are, you could be, they could be marked more by like apathy or even distraction from spiritual things. And you can imagine a guy like James, he lived with Jesus every day of his life, but he actually didn't seem impacted by Jesus until much later in his life. You could actually live with Jesus. You could seem to walk with Jesus. You could call on his name and apparently it not matter much. And I wonder if some of you have experienced this. Maybe you've hit a plateau in your spiritual journey where you're just sort of here and you're just kind of moving along and there's just not much to it. You're kind of just giving it the minimum That is required, or so you think. Or maybe what's really going on is you've got some secret sins that no one else really knows about, and they're holding you back because you know what's really going on, and so you don't press in any deeper with Jesus. This happens to us. And so we don't live our our lives kind of full tilt for Jesus. James, the brother of of Jesus, he calls us out of all of that and onward toward full Christian maturity. So let's get a little bit of the background. Well, we know he was a Jewish man. We know he was one of the younger brothers of Jesus. And just to see it in the scriptures, so you know it, it's in Matthew 13. Coming to his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers, Jimmy and Joey and, and, and Simon and Joseph and Ju- I mean Judas, aren't, aren't all of his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. So here they are. They're saying, we know this guy. We know his family. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. We don't know how many sisters, at least two, because it's plural. You know, James, he most likely spent his time apprenticing, like most of the young men in a family would do, with uh, their father, Joseph, as a construction worker. It was a small blue-collar town near a lake community. We call it the Sea of Galilee. 
But they would have done all types of construction based on the way that they are described, the word that's used of them. And they seem to really have lived a pretty normal life. We don't have much about them in those early years. Well, I guess it was normal until Jesus sort of turned everything upside down. And I wonder what that must have been like. He started teaching and walking around all of Israel, and the people didn't know what to make of him. They were kind of going crazy over him. The leaders wanted him dead. The crowds wanted more from him, sometimes more than he was willing to give, and then sometimes he would chase them away. But the miracles were piling up. And so there was, there was just no denying that something crazy and something special was going on. And still, James didn't believe. We see it in John 7. When the, fest, the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. You get the, the tone of what they're saying. Oh, here you are in the little village here. Why don't you get on the big platform? That's what you really want, right? You want all the people. You want all the accolades. They're assigning the worst possible motives to their brother. They assumed that what he really wanted was just all of the glory. And so they, they challenge and half mock him. At one point, the family actually decided that he had lost his mind. And uh, in Mark 3, we read this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. All the people pressing and pressing in. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. And they said, he is out of his mind. So he's lost it. And he's just, he's kicking up a whole lot of ruckus. And then all of that changed. Their whole attitude about it changed. Because an encounter with Christ changes everything. See, James, he grew up with Jesus. But one day he met Christ. Now you guys know Christ isn't his last name. That's like, it's not like Robert Kelly, Jesus Christ. The Christ is actually a title. It's, 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 a, it's a version of what we would say the Messiah. So he, he was the promised Savior. And one day he went from being Jesus to being the Christ. And that changes everything. In 1 Corinthians, Paul actually recounts when this probably happened. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance that Christ died for your sins, our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. So he's saying, listen, Jesus, he was, he was appearing to everybody. After the resurrection, after he had been killed, he starts appearing to everyone. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses saw him alive. But then he goes on to say, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one I'm now normally born. And so, we now, so somewhere along the line, James actually meets the risen Christ, the Messiah. 
And that was what he needed. He needed that change. He needed to know that it wasn't just Jesus. Now, James becomes this faithful advocate for Jesus. He becomes a powerful church leader, a pillar of the Jerusalem church. He actually oversaw one of the first church councils and avoided like an early church split by applying some really great wisdom to a difficult situation. Then church history tells us that he came to be known as James the Just because of his exquisite devotion to Jesus and his commitment to live a righteous life. And then in 61 AD, he was martyred in one of the many persecutions that broke out against Christians. So from doubting younger brother to leader of the Christ movement, from thinking his brother was crazy to himself being crazy enough to die for that same brother who he now knew to be his savior. And you know, coming to know Christ as Lord and Savior will change the trajectory of your life. And if you think that Jesus was simply a good man who lived 2,000 years ago and he kind of run into some trouble with the law and they killed him and that was the end of a sad story, then of course your life isn't going to change any. But if you understand that that same Jesus died predicting his own death and then resurrection. And then he pulled it off with hundreds upon hundreds of eyewitnesses. Now you realize he's not simply Jesus. He's Jesus the Christ. And now what he says about your life and about your future and about your death and about your future life with God, it matters. And if you let that settle into your heart, it will in fact change everything because followers of Christ will most certainly experience a changed life it is not optional it is certain obeying Jesus isn't an add-on to your Christian experience it is your Christian experience you cannot separate them out Open, if you would, in a Bible to James chapter 1. And we're going to see what James has to tell us about some of these kinds of things. It's fascinating to me because James actually assumes that we're all going to grow up into maturity. He just makes the assumption, like, like there's no other way for it to actually be. Of course you're all going to grow into maturity. And I sort of have to think that this is a reflection of his own experience of doubting Jesus and then sort of coming to grips with the truth about who his brother really was. And so he, he had gone through this experience himself. And so I think he knew that faith has to be tested. And once your faith is tested, that's how you will really actually grow. That's how you will know and that's how the world will know because now your faith is being tested. And James certainly experienced the testing of his faith. And early on, he had failed many of those tests. But from his conversion onward, he began to pass more and more of those tests. And he grew into full Christian maturity. So James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance 
Finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That is the goal. Full and complete maturity. Perseverance in no matter what comes. Because no follower of Christ is born mature. It comes over a lifetime of obedience through countless thousands of decisions to trust and obey Jesus today. In this moment and in the next moment. And there Christian maturity starts to form and thrive in your life. And here's the reality. So Beacon isn't here to make you comfortable. We're not here so that like you could become like a little better version of yourself. We're not here so that like your road rage can get a little better. And so you don't flip off like other drivers. And we're not here like so that, you know, your marriage gets like a little bit better and your, your spouse can kind of put up with you now because you're not intolerable. Like this isn't now all of those things might result. And I certainly hope they do. But, but that's not the purpose here. Our goal is your full and complete spiritual maturity. That's what we want. The ministries that we have and how we design things. Like, So we have small groups. So why do we encourage you to be in a small group? Because you will be with a small group of people who are learning to apply God's word to your life, to your unique circumstances, to your situation. You'll apply them to your life and you'll grow in maturity. We offer discipleship classes. It's this whole long thing. It's a curriculum. It's awesome. It's three years long, but it only happens once a month. And the classes are two hours. And in those two hours... We're, show, we're teaching over the course of this three-year curriculum, we're teaching you the basics of the Christian faith so that you will have the knowledge base you need to attain full maturity. But we're not, we're not content there. So we have these triads we set up, these little discipleship groups. We find a more mature Christian who has been in the faith longer, has more experience, and we pair them up with two or three other people and we say, all right, Go spend some time sharing life together and get in the Word and look at some books and try to understand how you can grow so that you too can become a disciple maker. That's our goal. That's our hope. We do all of these. We ask people to serve. And people are like, oh, yeah, I want to serve. I'll help you out. You're not helping us out. We're giving you an opportunity to serve so that your self-centeredness, that my self-centeredness can be jostled out of place, that we can start thinking about others. That we can begin experiencing what it's like to give of yourself so that we could attain full Christian maturity. That's our hope. That is our prayer for each and every one of you. So are you experiencing godly life change? And if not, what are you going to do about it? Because the ball is in your court Are you growing closer to God? Is faith impacting you more and more? Is more of your life shifting? Are more of your decisions being made in light of what Jesus is calling you to do? That's growth toward Christian maturity. See, genuine Christians will continually and increasingly move toward maturity. Every one of us ought to be. And a big part of maturity means that we deal with our sin issues. And this is so important. And I wonder how much of James' emphasis on dealing with sins comes from having grown up with Jesus. Because that must have been quite a thing. It must have been hard experiencing a perfect older brother. (laughs) 
maybe infuriating at times. Can't you be more like Jesus? Can you imagine Mary saying that to the other kids, not really fully understanding what was going on? Why can't you be more? So I wanted to know what this was like, so I called my sister, and I said, you know, sis, what was it like growing up with a perfect sibling? <laughs> and uh, no, she balked at the whole, whole thing. In fact, uh, she, she actually choked a laugh yeah, through texting, which was really fun to watch. Um, and she reminded me of some fun stories, and one of them that I had that I had asked her to send me some pictures of was that she, um, so when we were growing up, uh, I was younger, my older brothers are, are quite a bit older than us, but it was me and my sister, my two older brothers, but you know, we overlap quite a bit at uh, certain times. And uh, so my sister, she had a problem, like a, I don't know, like a deviated septum or something. I was young, I, I, maybe I was eight or something at the time, nine. But uh, she had like a deviated septum, and so they went in there, and they were going to fix the deviated septum. But, you know, while they're in there, they decided to fix like everything else. And so anyway, she ended up with this massive job on her face, and like she had the thing, the brace, and there was like tape all over. And, and so she was, you know, glad to be out of the hospital and glad to be home. Uh, but, and, but, you know, every time she smiled, it hurt. So we decided it would be fun to make her laugh. Because how can you get in trouble for making your sister laugh. I'm not getting her upset, I'm just making her laugh. And so, you know, she had uh, this massive stuffed animal collection. It was like a thing back then. I don't know if it's still a thing, but, because um, I had all boys, um, and so they would like break dolls, but um, like stuffed animals, it'd be surgically, anyway. So, but the girl, she had all these stuffed animals. And so what we decided was when she got home from the hospital, we, uh, we put tape on every single nose that we could find. So everywhere she looked in the house, she had, she had tape on all of her. It was pictures on the wall and in books and everything. Every single doll had, had tape. And, of course, every time she looked around the house, she smiled, and then she laughed and giggled, and then she cried, which we just couldn't get enough of. We thought was, this was the funniest thing. So she's laughing, she's crying, she's laughing, she's crying, and this is what it's like to live with a perfect sibling. And so I, you, you almost wonder, right? So like what happened in those early years? Was there some sort of jealousy? Was there some sort of envy that developed among the brothers? Maybe there was frustration at the status that their brother was gaining and they weren't. Maybe there was some of that. Or maybe they were simply upset that all of this unwanted attention was now being poured out on their family. How many times did they have to answer the question, hey, what's with your brother, man? He's like kind of a crazy dude walking around that people are saying he's like doing merit. Like how would they just get frustrated because of all of the unnecessary attention? I think James was confronted with his own sin issues that needed to be rooted out of his life. And so he, he goes through this letter and he tells us, listen, we, there's a few things that we got to think about because we got to avoid sin. And what, what he talks about here are the sins that we commit. Right? And normally these sin lists are like sexual immorality and murder and violence. And you know, these are often in the lists because they're often writing to Gentiles. But, but James isn't. He's primarily writing to Jewish Christians. And so he ends up listing a whole lot of sins that were different from some of the other lists. I like to call them good people sins. Right? It's the sins that good people that good people do. And, and so when you're talking about good people sins, you're talking about not being patient when you ought to be. You're talking about warnings about wealth and how we use it. Favoritism or gossip, the use of the tongue. James lists all of these types of sins. He's saying we need to avoid these kinds of good people. He doesn't say good people sins. He just calls them sins. 
I call them good people sins because they're things like envy and ambition. You know, this is for me, this is a kind of a big deal because like in the last two years, so, you know, we all have things we're working on and hopefully you're continuing to work on your sin issues. And for me, it was like two years ago, I started dealing with these things and I was like, I thought a lot of these had been put to rest already and they're kind of revisiting in, in new ways. It ends up that I'm, I'm dealing with like ambition issues. And I'm like, you know, I'm 48, I'm like 48, I think I'm 48. And I'm, and I'm dealing with like, like these sin issues in my heart and, and I'm reading these books and I'm trying to talk to like, you know, some mentors and trying to figure out what's going on and I'm realizing, no, I actually have like ambition issues. Like I'm obsessed with it. And like I'm, I, you know, we're re singing this song earlier today about how, you know, I'm, I am who he says I am. And I don't, I don't always believe that. Like I actually believe I am who I, wh who, what I can produce. You know, I, I'm, I ought to be judged and measured by how, how productive I am for the kingdom and what we're able to accomplish as a church. And so I have these, and I know this isn't right. I know these are sin issues, but these are good people sins, right? These are the things that we wrestle with when we're not like, you, you know, you're not wrestling with all these other kind of things, but, you're, but these things are still in our hearts and they're still sin and they still corrupt our relationship with Jesus and they have to be dealt with and they've got to be rooted out. So he goes through this whole long list of different types of sin issues. And he says, you've got to avoid these sins. You've got to move away from them. And he also goes into a whole list of failing to do good, which is really disturbing. These are the sins of, of omission. Now, these are the things that we ought to have done, but we didn't do. And why didn't we do them? Self-centeredness, protecting our own. We want to spend our time, energy, our talent, our treasure, all that. We want to spend that on ourselves, not on others. We don't want to give because if I give out, I might not have enough for me and mine. He's saying these are sins. And he also has this whole other category that I'm calling diluting by the world. He talks about friendship with the world. He calls it adultery, spiritual adultery. And he lets us know that there's a type of, of dilution of our spirituality, what we used to call worldliness, worldliness, where where we just sort of move so comfortably through the world and we just sort of pick up its values and we sort of just pick up the way they, they function in the world and then we just sort of become that. And he's saying, please don't be polluted by the world. James tells us that our behavior matters. Flip over to James chapter 2. Look at verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Listen, faith without deeds is dead. So you might believe all of the right things. You might have grown up in the church. You might be a good person. The demons have right theology. They also know who Jesus really is. But it changes nothing. Faith without deeds is dead. 
And if we're not avoiding sin and doing good, and if we're not resisting pollution from the world, then we should question whether or not we are even followers of Jesus. Because we absolutely know that if the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart, he will relentlessly change you. It is inevitable. It's what the Spirit does and does it without fail. And it's foolish to follow Christ and then refuse to change. He, James likens it to a mirror. And I asked my wife to bring me this little makeup mirror, uh, which is really interesting because, you know, the one side of it, like you see normal, and the other side you see like every pore. Like it almost sees into your soul. Like you're looking at it, you're like, oh my goodness, look at my... And so like, you know, and so James, he uses this image of a mirror. And, uh, and look at James chapter 1, verse 22. It's, I love this, this image. And it just struck me kind of in a new way this week as I was reading, reading and studying. James chapter 1, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And think how many times James must, James must have done this. Over and over, he must have heard Jesus talk about God and the kingdom countless times. And he must be like, oh, geez, knock it off. I don't know if he really called him geez, but like it would be Yah back then, Yah, Joshua. Anyway, it would be like, you know, oh, geez, just knock it off. Like, come on. You know, what are you doing? All with this hyper spirituality, you know? Oh, God. And Jesus would be like, yes. You know, you called me, and he'd be like, no, 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 you, oh, you were just using the Lord's name in vain? Oh, sorry, I thought you were calling me. I don't know if Jesus did stuff like that, but, I, but, but you can imagine how challenging it would have been, right? So imagine this, what he's saying, and why this is so foolish for us. So you're looking at the thing, and you've got a hot date, right? And so you're going out on the date, and you're like, you know, back here, you're like, yeah, I look pretty good. And then you kind of move forward, and you're like, oh, well, wait, maybe not. Like, I got this thing over here, and I got something over here, and... You know, I got, a, I got stuff in my teeth. If you turn it over, it's terrible because you're like, ah! You're like, I got blemishes and problems and I got things I got to work on and I got all of this, you know, these kinds of stuff. And if it's a big mirror, you get to be like, oh man, I got, I got, you know, my shoes are all scuffed up and I'm not, I got all of these issues. I'm actually quite a mess. And you got this day coming, you're like, ah, don't worry about it. Just forget it. What? Ladies, if he forgot it, have your friend call it in. Like, have them cancel the date after a few. If he really just mailed it in, if he doesn't care enough to actually just do a decent job presenting himself, my goodness, we would not do that. Because, of course, now, what if it was worse? What if you're looking and you're like, well, that's an unusual growth. You know, you're like, I got like a splinter in my eye here. And, you know, you got, why that mole is looking a little funny. Or, you know, I got this really, I'm looking at this big mirror. And I'm like, I got this like bullseye of a, of a mark on what is that it looks like a bullseye what is that you're like eh, don't worry about it why see here's the thing about the mirror and this is why i say it's foolish because I, and i think this is what james is talking about because the mirror only shows you reality it's just showing you what's really there and if you really have those issues, and if you really have that growth, and if you really have that bullseye-looking welt, you should get it looked at. 
You should do something about it. And knowing it's there and doing nothing about it is idiotic. We would never do that about our physical health, and yet we do it with our spiritual health all the time. So what does that mean? It's straightforward enough. Don't ever stop pressing forward. This week, press forward. See, in every human heart, there is sin from birth. And it wants to derail you. It wants to take you away from what Jesus wants. It wants you to not live your best Jesus life now. It wants us to move toward destruction and away from God. Don't stop pressing in. This week, make a commitment. Get back into your prayer time if you've wandered away. Start up with your Bible reading if you're not doing it anymore. Get connected with a spiritual family. Find that group. Be together. Start sharing life. Do some reading. Listen to some podcasts. Spend some time in worship. But never stop pressing forward. When the Spirit reveals something that isn't quite right, Deal with it. Explore it. Some of these things take a long time. I've been dealing with a couple of these issues like this, this achievement thing in my heart. I've been dealing with this for like two years where I feel like, you know, I'm making some progress and then other things aren't and God's revealing it and I'm repenting of it. And I just, they, it take, you got to press in. Some of these things are deeply wound around our hearts and in our souls. And then listen, here's, and then the other part I just got to say, you don't obsess over your sin because it's, it, 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 it it is just as bad to always be fearful and obsessing over, over sin issues as it is to never think about them and never try to, try to deal with them. Because, you know, we, we live in the age of grace and forgiveness and mercy. And so if you're on like a witch hunt in your own heart, and worse, if you're in a witch hunt in other people's hearts uh, for, you know, every little sin that might need plucking, this could drive you crazy and be exhausting. But what I'm saying is when you're walking with God and the Spirit prompts you, listen, when you feel it, when you hear it, when someone who you know, you love, and you respect comes up alongside, puts their arm around you, and says, listen, brother, listen, sister, here's what I'm seeing. Listen. You don't have to be freaking out. Don't be obsessing over it and worrying and all that kind of stuff. But don't ignore it either. Find someone you can confess to. Maybe you're dealing with something secret right now. You're keeping it way down deep and you're not letting anybody see it and you know like it's just wrecking your, the, your, your, your walk with God because you feel the guilt and so you're moving away but Jesus wants you to come back and you're not able to do it and you've confessed to him but it's, it's not out in the open yet. No one else knows. James tells us, confess. Get it out. Deal with it. And let's rip this thing out by the root. Find someone you can trust. Someone who loves you who wants your best, who's cheering for you and who's wise. Confess it to another believer and then trust that Jesus has your best interests at heart because he really does. He's not doing this to pile on. He's not doing this because, you know, he's, he's angry at you. He so desperately loves you. Remember, we're coming to the table here in just a moment. He, did, he died for you. So that you could be reconciled to him and to our heavenly father. Trust that what he wants. Listen, you know, we get upset and we're like, how come Jesus, how come we're doing this? Oh my goodness, I'm doing this thing again. He wants what's best for you. And if you trust that, cultivate that heart of trust and dependence. And know that he wants what is absolutely best for you. 
I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to be going to the Lord's table here in just a moment. And as they do that, I just want to, uh, I just want to pray, uh, pray for us here. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we do come before you now. And as we're coming to the table of communion, what we're looking for, Lord, is a few moments of reflecting more fully and completely on you, on what you've done for us. And Lord, you've given us the perfect example in Christ. You've let us see, Father, what it means to live so perfectly and fully with you. And you, Lord, it can be overwhelming, and yet you've told us that the power of the Spirit will transform our lives now, and that's what we want. We want to live full tilt for you, sold out, Lord, because we know that your plans for us are best. You only take away so that you can replace with something far more meaningful and far more amazing. That's what we want, Lord. We ask it in Christ's name.